0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Of all of the training my son received in the jungles of Central America, nothing prepared him better for combat than the game of chess. It taught him almost everything he needed to know about war. But to win, you must be patient, bold, calculating, and most of all, willing to sacrifice.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 24, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughan. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM.
3: Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no not right wing.
4: Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white, under the bedclothes.
2: And today on the show, is it a game, is it a science, is it an art, is it a representation of life, is it a drug? My goodness, the game of chess is more than you might think it is, and today we're going to take a first look at this incredible game that goes back literally millennia in history, and look at some of the people that play the game and what the motivations are behind it. Another subject we'll be talking about today that we'll start the show off with is the education system itself, is it still failing our children? Because Robert Vaughn, my co-host here, was once a two-time, two-timer time 2 two-timer in the education <laughs> board, a two-timer, yeah. And uh, has some very strong, I guess, sentiments and comments to make on that subject today. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or email us with your comments
3: at feedback at justrightmedia.org. So what's the bad news, Robert? Well, it is bad, Bob, I I think. And now that I'm no longer a trustee and my kids have, <laughs> have gotten out of the system, I feel free to uh, be able to say exactly what I think of the pubg- public education system, not only in London, not only in Ontario, but in Canada as well. And I think it's prompted by... Was it yesterday that the uh, report of the early childhood educators came out and said that toddlers of two years old should be... Uh, Introduced yep. into a structured school yes, environment structured. run by the state? Yeah, at age two, yeah. Yeah, that sort of prompted me to, to do this, because I was going to talk briefly about Afro, Afrocentric schools and some of the controversies, but that started me really, really, that boiled my blood to hear that. I think a lot of people are familiar with the quote by St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit movement, "'Give me the child until he is seven years, and I'll give you the man.'" Now this recent report by Early Childhood Educators has called for the introduction, as I said, of two-year-olds to the public school system. The authors of the report cite many studies by their colleagues demonstrating the supposed benefits to the child for such an early introduction into the structured institution of the state-run school, but they've also cited ancillary possible benefits of, say, for example, keeping women in the workforce rather than staying at home rearing their children. What an odious task that must be. Not women as such, but mothers. (laughs) Well, yes, yes, mothers, of course, yes. Now, the real benefit is neither seen by the mothers nor the children, if you ask me. It is realized by the educators. Not simply in their financial gain from the estimated $1 billion in federal funds necessary for the program, but in the propagation of the ideology of the vast majority of public system educators today. We all know what that ideology is. Give us the child for eight years, and it'll be a Bolshevik forever. That quote is from Vladimir Lenin. No
2: kidding. (laughs)
3: It just takes one
2: extra year for some reason. Hmm. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Actually, uh, to say that these quotes are accurate, I'm not sure, because when I'm researching for these quotes, they were all over the place. Give me a child for six years, give me a child for eight years, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But I settled on these. The bottom line is they want to get them early. Yeah. In other words... Give me the child. That's the overriding thing. Give me the child and I'll mold him into what I think he should be, not what you, the parent, should think he should be. Now, it's no secret, as I said, that the political ideology of the public education system is one that differs greatly from many, if not most, of the parents who find no alternative for the education of their children. From the newly hired supply teachers, fresh out of teacher's college, to the veteran directors of education, to the ministers of education across this land, they themselves are perpetrators and propagators of an ideology that can be only be properly defined as left of the political exp- uh, spectrum. There's no doubt in my mind that the purpose of previous governments in making it possible for children to attend half-day junior kindergarten to all-day JK to now toddler kindergarten is the promise of molding the child's mind into one that is amenable or agreeable to the ideology of the left. Why? Because few intelligent adults would fall for it. you got to get the child when they're young, when they're impressionable. If we take a look at the schooling of previous generations, that of our parents and our grandparents, uh, you might even say some of our early education. Bob, I think you're in the, the 50s, in the 60s, mm-hmm. I'm more of in the 60s and the 70s. But um, there's been drastic changes even since that time. But over our our parents' time and our grandparents' time, fantastic changes for the worse. Our forefathers were intelligent and socially adjusted people. There's no doubt about it. They were the people who made the world what it is today, for many of the good things and its bad things. And yet many of them did not even finish high school. Many didn't have the advantage, so-called, of kindergarten, and yet they thrived. They survived. They succeeded. How can this be? This is flying in the face of all the current research on early childhood education. How can they be successful without having been taken by the state at the age of two or three or four and molded into a proper citizen? If if I even look at my own schooling, I'm just going to go off topic for a little bit and get a little personal here because my schooling was a little different than here in Ontario because I grew up in Newfoundland if i look at my own schooling i find that i didn't find myself disadvantaged at all that i didn't attend toddler kindergarten or junior kindergarten though i did attend kindergarten in fact i graduated from high school at grade eleven it went to eleven went to eleven in newfoundland doesn't anymore It goes to twelve now but at eleven which was then the graduation um, date or or grade rather It, it occurred in the province where i grew up in newfoundland I went straight from high school into university. But because our high school only went to grade 11, we had to take two courses in pre-calculus to catch up to our Ontario counterparts, who graduated, a course, at grade 12 at that time. That was mid-70s. For the sake of two courses in math, Ontarians had to spend another year in high school. I just made 2 makeup courses in university, mm. you know? So this myth of keeping the kids in school is just a myth. Now, let's examine closely this institution we've come to uh, accept as an absolute necessity for our children. By the way, education, I think, is an absolute necessity. My thesis is, should we have the state do it? It's
2: it's the issue between schooling versus education. Who's doing the schooling? Mm -hmm. And what's ironic is most of these educators are telling us that the kids educate themselves, and I'm wondering, well, why do we need you? (laughs) Yes. The the writers of that report were saying that. I might might get a chance to mention that later. Yeah, I think you just did.
3: Well, more (laughs) detail. (laughs) Okay. The monolithic public education system has been and continues to be the source of many social conflicts. As a matter of fact, I think if this was a private system, people would be clamoring to say, shut it down, shut it down, look at all the things that are going on there. We can't have private people doing all this stuff. Well, it's a public system, and they're doing it. In Toronto, we have the accommodation of Muslims who leave class to pray in the school gymnasium while no such accommodation is afforded any other religion. A place of learning the truth of nature, such as math and science, has been reduced to a mosque. Can you imagine the conflict going on in the minds of children when the teacher, after instructing his students in science, then dismisses half the class so that they can pray to some supernatural imaginary deity? The yeah. Contradictions are unbelievable. Also in Toronto... We see the vilest form of ignorance rear its ugly head after decades of silence, the establishment of schools based on race, these Afrocentric schools designed to teach black-skinned Canadians about the history of a continent they've probably never even visited, rather than the history of the country they were born into. It's an affront to reason and an insult to the very children that they are segregating on the basis of their distant ancestry. Shameful. Not too long ago, there was a, a tussle between the parents who preferred their uh, children to be taught how to read using a method of systematic phonics rather than the whole language method that the public school system used. Remember that battle, Bob? Uh, you and I were actually I instrumental sure do. into it. Now, the illiteracy rate under whole language, using my stats when I, when I was involved in that debate, was seventeen of high school graduates being illiterate. 17%. That's right, seventy percent of graduates were illiterate. It naturally begs the question, how could they have graduated? When I was a trustee on the Board of Education for the City of London, I asked the same question to the director of education at the time. His answer was that the board has never failed a child. It's funny, I read about somebody who dropped out of school in grade 8,
2: and therefore attributed his illiteracy to the fact that he dropped out of school in grade 8. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, you can't read by grade 8? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that says something. That says a lot. All graduates under that system right, were of the child-centered learning system. Imagine, one size fits all. They call it a child-centered learning system. So it, it just it made me very frustrated as a trustee. Now, there's an ongoing debate now of how young a student must be before the teacher shows him how to put on a condom. That's great. There are debates on the teaching of evolution to children of parents who believe that the world is only 6,000 years old. That's quite controversial. And then there's the never-ending debate on class sizes, standards of dress, standards of conduct, standards of punishment, standardized testing, group instruction versus individual instruction, when I went to school of course the um, the desks were all in rows and you sat facing the teacher who would instruct you directly. Mm-hmm. And of course now it's a basically it's free for all in a lot of these classrooms desks all over the place kids running through the halls and it's just it just doesn't seem at all to be uh, conducive to education.
2: You know th- I think are we operating under a false assumption here that we're dealing with an education system or are we really dealing with a with a I don't know, overblown babysitting system.
3: I think that's what I, it is. I,
2: I actually heard some of these authors, again, of this two-year-old study <laughs> saying that uh, you know babysitting is a very important part of this whole function. Because that's how you get the parents back out into the workforce, you see. Mm-hmm. So schooling, in large measure, takes the role of taking kids off the street and keeping them out of the job market for as long as they possibly can keep them out. That's, that, that yes, was, I've yes. always seen that as a basic function of a public education system. Remember the old, the old saying that there's only two places where time is more important than
3: accomplishment, yes. and that's prison and schools. Yep. You can't get out of prison until your time's up, and you can't get out of school until right. your time's so, up. So,
2: like, why couldn't you go through school if you knew all your stuff and just sat down, wrote all the tests, and you're done? Yeah. We couldn't have that.
3: No. Because that that wouldn't
2: employ a whole bureaucracy. There's a a number of of
3: reasons why they have the system. That's, I think, is probably one of the better ones. But I think that uh, an underlying, or proper word, insidious uh, reason is, as I said before, the indoctrination, the political indoctrination of the minds of the children under the charge of these uh, educators. Uh, There are parents who can only shake their heads when they... um, When they stay at home on Friday and the children stay at home on Friday, several Fridays throughout the year, each year, as their teachers undergo some sort of professional development, even though uh, these same teachers have two months off in the summer to professionally develop themselves. Not that such professional development has been seen to improve their teaching skills over the few decades, So um, I'm going to take a break here, Bob, because I still have a lot more to say about education and a final conclusion, but um, let's do that after this break. Okay.
1: Rule number one, treat me with respect and you'll get it back from me. You don't, you don't.
0: Are you a real teacher?
1: Are you a real student? (laughs) Any of you real students? Didn't show from your transcripts. You're all way behind your fellow classmates here, which is why you've been assigned to room 36. For most of the day, I will be your leader. We'll focus on literature, history, and writing. For sciences and math, another faculty member will come in. I expect you to do your assignments every day. If you don't, you'll fail. You'll be back next year, and I won't feel the slightest bit guilty about it. Okay, let's start. I think we should take it from the beginning. Mr. Scanlon, you here? Yo. Just say here, yo's a little retro. Your parents said
4: yo. (laughs)
1: Where did man come from? Which man? The species. Monkeys? (laughs) Who told you that?
4: Darwin, not to my face.
1: (laughs) Everybody here believe we came from monkeys?
4: Well, where do you think we came from?
1: I'm not sure. Could be evolution. Could be Adam and Eve. Could be both. How can it be both? God created man who looked like monkeys which evolved from there. Does it have to be either or? Can't we have creationism and evolution? Don't tell me none of you ever even wondered. Okay. How did the universe start? Anybody?
3: Big mother bang. (laughs)
1: Big bang. Okay. Anybody else have a different idea? How long before the universe ends? Ms. Carter. What's going to happen to you after you die? Worms will eat me. (laughs) Do you have a soul? Does it go anywhere? Do you become anything? I don't know. Anybody? Well, I've certainly discovered the problem in this room. None of you wonder. morning it was Ronnie
3: how's your first day going
1: I think you're about to tell me
3: took all of about 17 minutes for word to get back to my office that you're teaching creationism
1: Ah.
4: as a lawyer you no doubt know the church and state thing
1: I wasn't advocating creationism I was merely telling students what it is incredibly if you didn't know
5: well we don't teach religion here
1: not even to the ignorant I was teaching a science controversy makes me put on weird
3: that, of course, was Jerry Ryan playing a teacher in the show Boston Public. A show, by the way, I have not seen, but you have, haven't you, Bob? I just started
2: watching it just a few weeks ago, and um, I was amazed at the quality of the show, actually. Yeah. And um, so I think I'll continue watching it for a while. Well, I'd watch it just for Jerry Ryan. Well, but... <laughs> yeah, she's worth watching. and that was I have to say, that's the reason I went there. She, I was a yeah. fan of her in, in uh, Voyager, yeah. and I follow actors and actresses around, which I like them in their previous shows.
3: I usually like... The other shows they do, you know. Oh yes, yeah. um, but I tell you the truth, I don't know what to make of her as a teacher in this particular <laughs> sense because I, I'm glad I, she was not my teacher. Uh, the Socratic method is only good if you actually arrive at an answer. Don't not forget, s- she's dealing with troubled kids too, who, who have really given up on. Well, a yeah, lot of they said too. yo. Yeah. that's, well, that's well, very <laughs> troubling. <laughs> but you notice that this actually, I can go on for a long time about what I think are teachers' attitudes and why they. They think they actually have to dumb themselves down, be rough, have contempt for their kids as much as the kids have contempt for them in order to fit in. Of course, I think that's the entirely wrong way to go. She seemed to be rather uh, crude when she was dealing with the children there. Um, Well, if you saw what
2: happened before, you'd understand.
3: Oh, perhaps, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's only fiction, too. But, I mean, I think I uh, know from actual practice and actual experience that a lot of teachers out there um, are immature and, uh, or what we, you and I might call social um, Metaphys- they rely on social metaphysics, metaphysics yeah. in other words they derive their sense of their own self from what others think of them and in their case it's the children but um, I think I'm going to digress from my, my thesis here so let's get back on topic um, we're talking about teachers but what about the teachers union which um, can and has held every student in the province hostage when they strike to increase their already, in my opinion, overinflated salaries. Given the poor results of their teaching, I'd think that most of them don't deserve half of what they get. What galls many of us though is the political indoctrination I spoke of before, the political indoctrination of of our children into a destructive ideology. All children in our school system have seen the Michael Moore documentaries calling for such things as gun control, socialized medicine, welfare statism, All have been inconveniently inconvenienced by the propaganda film of Al Gore. And many of the schools turn off their lights for a day, one day of the year, and study in the dark as they worship Earth Day. Many promote Buy Nothing Day, which, by the way, I think is tomorrow. Um, to counter the, what they call it, Black Friday? Black Friday, in the States, and,
2: you know. and now it's going to be, you know, Occupy Christmas, that's oh, the latest yeah. nonsense.
3: Oh, and you can bet that, the uh, yeah, schools... It's all
2: anti-capitalism, oh, yeah? that's
3: what they teach in the schools, because the schools don't work on a capitalist right. system. And you can bet that the schools will be jumping on those bandwagons. This is perhaps the most destructive instruction that they can get, this, this buy-nothing day, the fact that consumerism is evil. That is evil all of this overt and unapologetic manipulation of our child's minds, much of it out of our control, combined with the poor learning results, has led me to the conclusion that, given the choice of no formal education at all, or 20 years at the hands, or 15 years at the hands of these monsters, that's right, I call them monsters, I'd recommend no formal education at all. It's my opinion that a child will be better off intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally, if they stayed at home and played on their computer rather than submit to the daily dose of lies they receive at the hands of our publicly funded educators. You think I'm soft-peddling this I'm, I'm, I'm astounded <laughs> here watching
2: you saying all this because I know you were a trustee. You were in the center of it. I remember all the nightmare stories you told me that never made it to the public oh, yeah. during that period of... How long was that you were in Six there? Six years. Several years. Yeah. And uh, I was just thinking, my goodness, if the public knew about half of this stuff... Yeah. It's true. We're just, it's, we're just touching the tip of the, tip of the iceberg yeah, yeah. here. Nobody yeah. wants to talk about it, though. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that the real problem? What do you see?
3: They're trapped. By law, they have to send their kids to school. By law, they have to uh, pay for the education system. They well, can't afford to send their the kids to private school. They've got to go out to work... Because it, the government taxes 50% of all they make. Both of them have to go out and work, the mother and the father. So they're sort of stuck. So they have to sort of swallow no, their problems and I, take this garbage. I understand that, but I'm,
2: I'm looking at the other side of the, the coin. Right now, today, everybody's complaining about the Ontario budget. There's not enough money. We're going bankrupt. What's the big, one of the biggest expenses on the budget? Education. And health. Does the subject come up even once when they talk about the budget? Never. Never. I I heard a conversation this morning go on for half an hour to an hour on another radio station, and not once did the stuff they're spending the money on come up as a topic of discussion.
3: Isn't that fascinating? That
2: that alone. I sit there. I'm living in a
3: in in a a totally weird world. It doesn't even know. You know, if government shut down tomorrow, right, and all the schools shut down. And uh, all that was left was the police and the courts. My God, this would be a great place to live. <laughs> I don't care if all these government employees go out of a, get out of a job. Well, it'll only be a government job. They'll have another job. That's you know? right. They'll have, that's just a government job, paper pushers. I don't care, really. Well, anyway, back to education. Gee, we're getting hot today. <laughs> <laughs> it's no secret, at least to those who have studied the matter, that teaching a child to read takes very little time. And you and I looked into this, Bob. In a matter of months... A young child can be taught to read anything. Over time, their vocabulary increases and comprehension comes naturally the more they read. Now, it's this natural propensity for children to learn that these early childhood educators wish to take credit for. And you told me that yesterday, You got it. What can be the cure for these grievous miscarriages of education? Ultimately, it's the complete abolishment of the public education system. Which means means government-funded education. That's all I'm asking for, not education. Education is wonderful. All education is public in some eyes. Yes, (laughs) Private, too. Now, of course, we can all realize that that's not going to happen. So how do we proceed from here, given the facts that we have today? First, let's reject en masse this report that two-year-olds go to state-run schools. It's not objectionable that toddlers go to school... Per se, as many are already in daycare at that age. Mine were, as a matter of fact. Montessori. Mm -hmm. In fact, Montessori and other private schools offer excellent education instruction for toddlers, far superior to any which could be afforded by overpaid government bureaucrats, which is what public school teachers are. Let's not forget it. Every one of them, every one of them is a public educator uh, bureaucrat. But are they all bad? No, they're not. Uh No, they're not. But the vast majority of them are in my humble opinion they are but not they, they might all not of them. be
2: bad as teachers they might actually be good teachers but what they're teaching and what they're required to t- to teach might be the bad thing yeah you know
3: so they and might, that also makes them bad by the way well if I, they have their, if they have to actually swallow their good sense and teach lies what does that make them an employee of some somebody who's bidding they're doing that's yeah, what they're doing somebody looking after their pension that's
2: why you want to have a relationship between the parent and a monetary relationship between yes. the parent
3: and the teacher. Yes, agreed. Because only then will the parent call the shots. Right. So after pushing back this toddler kindergarten nonsense, let's push back a junior kindergarten. You want to save some money, Mr. McGinty? Let's scrap that, eh? We can demand that the government offer tax credits to those who choose to send their kids to private schools. Today, only the Catholics are afforded this opportunity to see their tax scholars go to the school system of their choice. The same choice should be given to all parents. If you choose to send your kids to uh, a private school, you should be able to list that school as your recipient of your education taxes. If you prefer the state to teach your child, you could have them direct their taxes to the, um, the school, the individual school, that your child goes to,
2: direct your taxes, not someone
3: else's. That's right, your taxes, not somebody else's. And then once you've paid those taxes, you stop. Now, what are the poor neighbors, uh, poor neighborhoods? You ask. Hmm. If uh, we're going to continue with a public education system, it is not out of the realm of possibility that rather than funding a system, we fund the student instead. And I'm talking about the poor students here, the poor families, and the poor neighborhoods. This notion. That because some small percentage of us can't afford to educate our kids, we have to fund a monolithic bureaucracy of a school system. is like using a sledgehammer to push in a thumbtack. It's overkill. Help the child who needs it. Maybe. But not the child who doesn't. Or the family who doesn't. Who can afford it themselves. Uh, By the way, as an aside, the same principle can be applied to the funding of health care. Rather than outlaw private doctor-patient relationships and private insurance the government could help only those that require it and leave the rest of us alone. The public education system has gotten away with their incompetence for far too long. It's become a huge, sacred cow. Like you said, Bob, nobody wants to talk about it. The two platitudes they'll spout if we dare to complain of their ineptitude are the following. Number one, but it's for the kids. To which we reply, no, it's not. It's all about you, you overpaid, overbearing, delusional bureaucrat. And number two, you know this one, Bob, you're just a teacher basher. Uh, yeah. yeah. To which we reply, if the shoe fits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the notion of teacher bashing is a bromide quickly spat out by the teachers' union bosses who feel that their gravy train live- livelihood is being threatened, so they retaliate, not with reasoned, cogent argument for why they are destroying the minds of our children, but with schoolyard-styled name-calling. Oh, you're a teacher basher. Really intelligent. Yep. Teachers have to be held accountable, yes, but at the root of the poor teachers are the teachers' colleges. Who teaches the teachers is the question which we must be asked. What are the teachers being taught, and by whom? I lay the blame for most of the problems of the public education system on the institutions of higher learning, the teachers' college. For the rest of the blame, just look in the mirror. When we continue to joyfully accept the nanny state's offers of free daycare in the disguise of education, we can only blame ourselves when our children graduate unable to read or write, or when our children file only contempt for us as parents for the 15 years of mindless torture and macaroni artwork we put them through, or when our children start marching on Wall Street seeking more entitlements. Bottom line, Bob, education is far too important a value to leave to the government and I understand we have a caller on the line. Paul McKeever, are you there? I am. How are you, Robert? Hi, Paul. Good, thank you.
4: Just a quick question, and, and I'll be content just to ask it. Ask it. What would be the purpose of, of taxing a person in the first place if the entire amount of, that, that they're uh, paying in taxes for their education is going to be redirected to the school of their choice? Why have it be paid first to the government and then to the school?
3: That's a good question.
2: Bob, you want to answer that one? Well, you wouldn't have to have it first paid to the government if you couldn't afford it, Right. It's not, that's not where the government comes in. We're talking about a system that we're in now. Uh, Are you okay. still there, Paul? Yeah. Yeah,
4: oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm, not, I'm just not following. So the idea was that apart from the people who couldn't pay for school because they didn't have the, the money, that the rest of us should be able to pay a, a tax to the government, which we then we would then direct to a school. It seems to me doing that would achieve nothing except ensure that some of the money we paid in taxes would be skimmed off by the bureaucrats before it got to the school.
3: Oh, there's that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I said before, Paul, the, the proper and ultimate solution is get rid of the whole darn system. That's sure. that in my, in my mind. But if we have to work with the system we have, I'm just throwing out some alternative solutions to the problem that we face. Tax credits are one of them, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So, I mean, what, what would you suggest?
4: Well, my only concern is that if you, if you legitimize the idea that they are the collectors in, in the first place, you're defeating your oppor- opportunities to um, make the case that the government shouldn't be involved in education. In other words, if they're not doing anything, don't pretend that they are.
3: So we're in agreement then? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Abolish the whole darn thing? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> thanks Thanks for the call, Paul. Take care. And we're at the bottom of the hour, so let's just go for well, a break. Before we do, oh. I just
2: wanted to say you know, something that I would like to see, you know, We're, we're going to go on to another subject now, something mm-hmm. that... Um, I would certainly like to see introduced in schools, and I I think it would be helpful to the minds of most kids, and that is actually teaching the game of chess, although there's a lot of controversy around chess, and chess has some dangers involved too, which really surprised me. So, uh, after this break, we'll be coming back and talking about this incredible game called
0: Chess. An extremely close match between the American and Japanese computers here in the finals. The Americans, led by programmer Andrew Good, have a slight positional advantage. The Japanese seize control of the center with Bishop to C5. Do
4: you know
1: how many grandmasters are here?
0: An unorthodox move by the Japanese, leaving their queen hanging on B-6 square. The American computer calculating a response.
1: What just happened?
2: That bishop on C-5 totally hammered him. Black's in total Zog's way.
1: Translation.
2: The Japanese just lost their queen. They're in big trouble.
1: And he's gonna win. The
0: Japanese desperately Counterplay after the disastrous loss of their points. Victory appears imminent for the Americans. Andy Good's Turk seized control of the match in the middle game and now appears just moves away from winning. Rook to c two. Checkmate. A shocking turn of events. The Japanese team has won the tournament and the military contract.
4: It's over. Andy lost. But the other team—they didn't lose their queen. They sacrificed it, it's just like Burn Fisher all over again.
5: Never mind. The point is,
0: the Turk fell for a trap.
5: It's like it just
2: choked. So now what?
4: so I could see all this but if you really wanted me to say no to letting my son play you wouldn't have bothered you want me to think
5: you want me to say no but you actually want me to say yes you have no idea what I want what is chess? do you think those who play for fun are not at all, dismiss it as a game, the ones who devote their lives to it for the most part insist that it's a science, it's neither. Bobby Fischer got underneath it like no one before him and found at its center, art. I've spent my life trying to play like him, most of these guys are, but we're like forgers, we're competent fakes. Successor wasn't here tonight. He wasn't here. He's asleep in his room in your house. Your son creates like Fisher. He sees like him. Inside. You can tell that by watching him play some drunks in the park? Yes. Party. Know what I want? I'll tell you what I want. I want Park what Bobby Fischer took with him when he disappeared.
2: That was from the amazing film um, *Searching for Bobby Fischer*. I don't know if you've seen. I know you watched it just yesterday, didn't
3: you? I saw it many years ago. Yes. too actually, quite an enjoyable film. Uh,
2: based on a true story of chess player Josh waitskin who starred, uh, who became a chess. Uh, marvel at age seven they're talking about a seven-year-old boy there in this case and um, you know it was interesting when i saw them playing chess in, in this movie for the first time i realized that no matter how good a chess player i ever thought i was i'm not even on a scale with these kids and the speed with which they can play a game they play a whole game in the time i make one move <laughs> and i'm not kidding you four minute games eight minute games You know, moving at lightning speed with incredibly complex uh, positions to have to consider. So, you know, I was looking at, and there was a whole culture of chess. A culture that stretched from what you might almost look at as a drug culture. All these people in the parks, you know, playing for drug money, playing for for booze, and, and yet incredibly intelligent people, and they'd have all these games. There's a lot of normal people in the parks, too. And I'd ask myself, is chess really a game, a science, an art, or just a form of escapism, as we might hear, suggested by Ayn Rand a little later in the show? Or is it all of the above? And if I've reached one solid conclusion on this question in preparation for today's show, Robert, it's this. Whether chess is a game, a science, an art, or a form of escapism depends entirely upon the player and on what motivates him. That's what makes chess. That's the secret to chess and that's what makes the whole thing interesting really. You know, so I guess if you're among those who think that chess is a game, today I'll be looking more at the players of the game. If you think chess is a science, well, I'll be looking at the scientists and mathematicians. Mm-hmm. If you think like the grandmaster we just heard from in searching for Bobby Fischer that it's an art, then we'll be looking at the artists. <laughs> so, I think personalities, motivations, and on what it all means to the grander picture in life are really the place to start. I I I got into so many thing, issues. You, you and I were talking about it off the air. I could do ten shows on this game without repeating myself and really getting into a lot of interesting observations. So... I'll get to the game of chess itself a little later in the show if I still have time, and really only to a minor degree, because I I will be doing more on this on future shows. But the first thing I wanted to do was go back about 22 years ago, and I've quoted from this particular interview before. It appeared in Playboy magazine in November 1989 with then-Soviet chess champion Gary Kasparov. And when I had quoted from it before on this show, we weren't talking about chess. We were talking about his warnings about uh, Putin coming back to Russia. Yes, yes. and uh, the politician, this guy, Gary Yes, he's gotten quite involved. And then what he had to say about chess, I sort of pulled that out of the interview, just to st- keep it to the game, because some of the things he says are very interest- interesting, depending on where I'm going with this. So they asked him, you know, most people think of chess as a pastime, a gentlemanly pastime, and that in American colleges, chess has this image of You know, something wimps really do. (laughs) And Kasparov replies, he says, are you crazy? He says, let me tell you a secret. Chess is the most violent of all sports. I'm a pretty good soccer player and long-distance swimmer, and recently I've taken up tennis, but I can tell you there's nothing as competitive, yes, I'll say as rough, as chess. The only goal in chess is to prove your superiority over the other guy and the most important superiority. The most total one is the superiority of the mind. Because there's no luck involved, no picture card coming up at the right time, no roll of the dice that saves you. It all has to come out of your head. You whip him or he whips you, it's as simple as that or as complicated as that. And then they ask him, Bobby Fisher used to say he enjoyed seeing his opponents squirm. He enjoyed hurting them. Is that true of you? This is an important question as you hear coming up later. Kasparov uh, responds, he says, I like to win the game. I love it. Yes, I need it. But on the other hand, I do not like to hurt people. The game for me is a kind of lesson for them. I can teach them something. I don't think I hate the opponent personally, but before the game and during the game and until the end of the game, he represents the alien will. He represents the enemy. It's not my opponent personally, but what's on the board there. It is my enemy. And so, then he says, this is interesting too, he says, he says he wants to kill what's on the board. He says, I can't explain it, but it is opposing me, and I have to destroy it to win this game. It means I have to kill this almost living thing. I am very hungry about strong, sharp feelings. Strong impressions, you know? It's kind of a drug. You must be on the edge. That is the best place. And when I'm on the edge, that's when I really feel alive. At the highest level of chess, you have to win the game twice. First you win psychologically, then you win the game on the board. Then he talks about his uh, world championship with Anatoly Karpov in 1987, where they were in the middle of game 24, and it was pretty well, he figured his position was 50-50 going into the game when they came back from a break. And he said he looked right in Karpov's eyes and, quote, and I understood that he didn't believe that he could save the game. And you know he lost his confidence. It was as if his energy flowed from him to me. I won the game and kept my title. So he says, uh, so he's asked, "What, what makes the difference between a good chess player and a great chess player? And he says, well, first of all, you have to be a great fighter has to be in your blood and second you have to have this kind of mystical feeling for the game just understanding it or having a lot of book learning isn't enough but if you have a feeling for the game you can create something new then they ask him this is interesting why is the level of soviet chess playing so high why do so many millions of people play serious chess in your country when they don't elsewhere remember the soviet union still existed at the time that this was printed And he responds, because most of the time there's nothing else to do in our country. (laughs) Chess fits the Soviet Union perfectly. It's the simplest of sports. You don't need a special field or court for it, just a chess set, pieces, and a quiet place in the park. It's the easiest way for people to have a little bit of enjoyment. And if you become a strong player, chess is one of the best ways for a Soviet citizen to improve his life, to get a better position, and maybe raise his standard of living above the average, which is not so good, by the way. Then he talks about and they got into a discussion about his memory, and he, apparently he was able to remember hundreds of phone numbers at a glance. Just look at them and remember them. For a short time, he says. He says it's a specialty of his memory, but oddly enough, he says, memory is not important for chess. It'll help you at the beginning, but you, can't, you can only remember a limited number of openings. At the top level of the game, you have to be able to calculate extremely and very, very far ahead. There's a big difference between memory and calculation. And so when asked how far ahead an aver- a good player can calculate, he says it depends on the situation, of course, because it's complicated. He says, um, you know, sometimes you're down to one move, one answer, you don't have a choice, but he says normally he can calculate between 10 and 15 moves ahead. 10 and 15, I'm lucky if I can go four or five, because you never know what the other person's going to respond to, right? And you got to change your options. He says, but that happens very rarely. Usually the positions are more complicated. And, you know, then you have to use your intuition in cases like that, personal, your positional understanding. And so he says, uh, you know, does he, does he lose as much to, as other chess players do? He says, probably... Um, more, but he doesn't overreact like some of the chess players. He says he feels very uncomfortable when he loses, Like he hates hate losing, is what he's being asked. He says, because if you lose, it means you've made a mistake somewhere along the line. If you have a good mind and you analyze your moves, you can find this mistake and it's something I can't forgive myself for. How could I make this mistake? Every fighter hates to lose, but for me it's worse because it means I've lost to someone weaker than I am. I understand chess better, I play better, but suddenly I lose because I make some stupid moves. I can't forgive that. I hate myself at that moment. How could I show my weakness to this weaker player? And then finally the the clincher, they say, you sound like an American. Americans always want to be winners. And he replies, this is a very human quality. It proves that Americans are very close to true human nature. Hmm. And the rest of the conversation went off in that direction. I could honestly say I'd be perfectly happy having read the whole interview. It's just a fascinating interview. Um the discussion ranged from chess to life in the Soviet Union, to women's rights and to his own, his own thoughts on politics, etc. But one thing stood out for sure, and that was that Kasparov was extremely attached to reality and reason. And he saw the obvious logical connection between those two qualities and freedom itself. And if you're not sure about that, consider the last question and answer in the Playboy interview, where they say, so, the game of chess really isn't all there is to Gary Kasparov, is it? Chess is finally just an instrument. A weapon for you to use in your broader fight for democracy and for human rights, for what you call a normal life. And Kasparov replies, absolutely. Mm. Now you have understood me. You know, like, like a Russian probably would, right? And I thought that was an interesting, interesting view of the game of chess.
3: I thought he was Azerbaijani, wasn't he? Sorry? Uh, I didn't think he was Russian. I thought he was from Azerbaijan.
2: Um... Oh, that's true, yeah. I'm not supposed to call him a Russian either. He doesn't like that. He had <laughs> no. to be called
3: a Soviet at the
2: time. That's right. They, they made that mistake in, in, in the interview, too. That's why I'm making it, probably. So we'll take a break now, and we'll be listening to another clip from the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, which uh, this one actually touches a bit on your education issue because they hire this guy to educate their kid in chess, and it's nice that you can call the shots when you pay the bill. We'll be back right after this. <laughs>
4: Come on, Josh.
5: His chess ideas are like pieces of his body. He's reluctant to give up. For instance, he simply can't cope with being told not to bring his queen out too early in the game. Why shouldn't he? He's won many a game in Washington Square. I exactly that. Why is this suddenly wrong? I'll
4: try getting him the brush his teeth sometime.
5: What I'm trying to teach him and what he's learning there are two very different things. Parkhurst has play tactics, not position. They rely on wild, unpredictable moves meant to intimidate their opponents. Great. In a two-minute speed game for drug money, but it'll cost Josh dearly in real games.
4: Well, he's learning some new words.
5: <laughs> I was wondering if you could keep him from playing there so much.
4: Sure. No. he
1: I mean, would kill him not to play in the park. He loves it.
5: Just makes my job harder.
1: Then your job's higher.
4: Do
5: you know what the word contempt means? It's to think of others as being beneath you. To be unworthy of being in the same room with you. I don't feel that. Well, you better start. Because if you don't think it's a part of winning, you're wrong. You have to have contempt for your opponents. You have to hate them. They don't. They hate you. They hate you, Josh.
1: I don't hate them.
5: Bobby Fisher held the world in contempt.
1: I'm not him.
2: What a great moment in that movie. You know, where here, here's this chess master trying to teach him to be vicious, and he just ignores him constantly in terms of those tactics. Uh, you know, if we go back another 20 years again, 1972, even further back than the Garry Kasparov interview, Ayn Rand had written what she called an open letter to the then Cho- Soviet chess champion Boris Spatsky, who was actually getting ready for a match with Bobby Fischer. And... She said. She wrote in that letter, she said, I was struck by the realization that the game itself and the player's exercise of mental virtuosity are made possible by the metaph- metaphysical absolutism of the reality with which they deal. The game is ruled by the law of identity and its corollary, the law of causality, which is two things we talk about a lot here each piece is what it is a queen is a queen a bishop is a bishop and the actions each can perform are determined by its nature a queen can move in any distance in any open line straight or diagonal a bishop cannot etc etc with all the moves right the identities and the rules of their movements are immutable and this enables the player's mind to devise a complex long-range strategy so that the game depends on nothing but the power of his and the opponent's ingenuity And then she posed a whole bunch of questions. She says, How would you play chess if, you know, in the middle of the game, they decided to allow bishops to move like queens? Just in the middle of the game. What if suddenly white players turned to black and vice versa? What if suddenly you had to work with a team of advisors to play your game of chess? Or what if a man with a gun was standing behind you to tell you how to make your moves? Or if the rules of chess were splintered so that with some people you play according to proletarian rules and others by bourgeois rules. Or if the prizes awarded at the end of the game were given to the losers. Or if you made the pawns suddenly more valuable than the other pieces on the board in the middle of a game. She said the whole system would fall apart, wouldn't it? And she says, well, that's what's happening in your country. Basically saying Great analogy. That. And that's why people can't plan long term. This is what's wrong with all economies that start to collapse because the rules are changing constantly. They change them every other day. They change them to the wrong thing. Everybody's afraid to invest now. You can see that. So she says to escape this this whole thing, especially people in the Soviet Union, Union, they generally fled to the game of chess, where they could find a little piece of reality. It's like it's, it's
3: like fly, uh, fleeing to gold.
2: Yeah, economically, that kind of thing, and. You know, she says, you know, you have a, a gift of precocious youth who finds himself bewildered by the world. It's people he cannot understand. And then he finds this game of chess that, that becomes a booby trap to him. And that's what her problem was. She thought that a lot of people were, were exercising intellectual effort that's devoid of a real purpose, because really it is only a game in the end, isn't it? Yeah. And, but maybe she didn't see winning the game as, pur- as a purposeful endeavor. But she says, you know, if for any number of reasons, psychological or existential, a man comes to believe that the living world is closed to him and he has nothing to seek or to achieve, that no action is possible, then chess becomes an antidote, a means of drugging on his rebellious mind. Remember Kasparov said that in an interview. He talked about how chess was a, like a drug to him. But I think he was thinking a little more in a like a stimulation type of thing, because he certainly wasn't just sitting there passively, enjoying the world go by while he was playing chess, right? He was not that kind of player, which to me tells me that, you know, it depends on the person who's playing. And, of course, that's what the game um, in Searching for Bobby Fisher proves, too. And that's what the, the, the young player Josh proves. He doesn't have to play by his master's rule or by the other guy's rule. He combines both of them, and he wins with that formula. So it was a great movie and a great lesson. And she says that... Um, You know, Rand proclaims that because the Soviet Union had turned the upcoming match that was coming with Bobby Fischer into this ideological contest between Russia and America, that she was actually rooting for Bobby Fischer to win. But then she says, however, Bobby Fischer's behavior, however, mars the symbolism, but is a clear example of the clash between a chess expert's mind and reality. Here's this confident, disciplined, obviously brilliant player falls to pieces when he has to deal with the real world. He throws tantrums like a child, breaks agreements, makes arbitrary demands, indulges in the kind of whim worship, one touch of which, in the playing of chess, would disqualify him for a high school tournament. Thus he be- brings to the real world the very evil that made him escape it, irrationality. Right? So, you know, she gets into this whole situation and talking about how... Nature is just as absolutist as chess, and her laws are just as immutable. And that's one of the reasons I think that chess should be taught in schools. And you don't have to be a great chess player to appreciate the game. You can be really really bad at the game and still appreciate it. And, you know, just getting into the game, we've only got a few minutes left, I noticed some very interesting things about chess. I'm not a great player, but I've played over the years. And chess is, you know, if you look at the board, it's a black and white game basically. Even though the choices and moves go far beyond that platform on which they, they rest. You've only got these two colors, right? Uh, usually black and white. Polar opposites can be other colors. But that's a binary pattern. Even to the point, point of have the, the board having eight squares in each direction, which is the minimum number of places required to represent each alphanumeric symbol on a computer, on a binary computer system. I don't think this is just coincidental the number eight is the key to the movement of all the chess pieces pawns included every piece has a minimum option of eight spaces to move into unless the piece is too close to the edge of the board and that would only be the knight and king by the way that would be affected that way but interestingly once you have all these chess pieces placed on the board their symbolism and their rules of motion suddenly turn what seems to be just this binary system this binary pattern ...into this complexity that's amazing. You know, I went on Wikipedia, Robert... ...you know how many legal positions in chess there are estimated to be? Apparently they haven't worked it out yet. Uh, 10 to the 43rd power and 10 to the 47th power... ...which was the provable upper bound... ...with a game tree complexity of approximately 10 to the 123rd power. Typically an average position has 30 to 40 possible moves... There could be as few as zero, in the case of a checkmate or stalemate, or as many as 218. So, you know, that's an amazing complexity, just stunning. Every piece, without exception, including the pawns and king, is capable of capturing another piece. And here's the weird thing, and I think this, this stick forces everything to be a system of eight. It's the way the knight moves, because the knight is an amazing invention. Unlike every other piece on the board, it does not move through space between its origin point and its destination point. It just goes there. This is not a linear movement like every other piece on the board, where if you want to go from one end of the board to the other with the queen and somebody's in your way, you've got to stop there, or take the piece if you can, right? So, most people visualize that shape as that L, you know? But in terms of spatial continuity, this, this is a very inconsistent motion. With every other piece on the board, the night is sort of capable of warp travel, if you want to put it, in Star Trek terms, right? Essentially appearing out of nowhere, since it can move to its destination on the board without any consideration of the other pieces between. The quantum fluctuation. Yes, and all the time it has, to, it's the only piece that moves from black to white to black to black to black to white and it has no other choice. It's always alternating colors. And it's amazing. Famous mathematicians have studied this motion. They call something called the Knight's Tour. You can check that out on uh, the visual pattern on uh, Wikipedia. But I was just thinking, you know, consider the computer programming challenge of integrating the motions of a rogue piece like the knight in with all those linear pieces. You know, that's an amazing feat. No wonder the chess is being used as the standard of measurement for the intelligence even of machines, which is something we'll get into on a future show. But today... We've got to wrap up, and we've got to leave for another week, and we'll continue this discussion later. Hey, Robert? Till then, we hope you'll be back with us next week. Join us again. See you then.
4: Fade into colour, colour into
5: black and white, under the bedclothes. It's not considered a move until my fingers have completely cleared the piece. Well, what's taken so long but i am analyzing my options unlike your winged approach i like to plan a strategy like a general leading his troops into battle <laughs> checkmate schwarzkopf <laughs> gosh it's very well done you're, you're really getting a, a feel for the game yeah there. <laughs> and all this time i thought chess was hard <laughs>
4: Well,
3: see ya. Sit down, old man. You're not going anywhere. <laughs>